Welcome to season two of The Plants We Eat, a podcast from the UNC Charlotte Botanical Gardens that investigates the fascinating history, biology, and culture behind the plants we use for food. This is Jeff Gilman and Cindy Proctor. Together, we have over 50 years of research, teaching, and hands-in-the-dirt experience with growing plants. And Cindy, today we are going to hit a fascinating crop, another one of our geophytes, in other words, in-the-earth crops. Rutabaga. You got it. You got it. Let's get into it. So this is, this is another one from um, my incredible brother who uh, is actually listening to this podcast. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. And uh, he thought that we should take a look at rutabaga. And, and by the way, the reason that he thought we should talk about rutabaga is because he read this interesting article by Helen Rosner in The New Yorker who's talking about rutabaga noodles. Which, oh. You know, yeah, very interesting. You've probably had like noodles made out of, for example, uh, cauliflower or something like that. Right. So she recommends rutabaga noodles and says they're wonderful. Now, I got to tell you, when we were getting ready for this episode, I've tried a lot of the stuff, if not most of the stuff that we've talked about on this show. I had never tried rutabaga. At least I, ha- I have really? never knowingly tried rutabaga before. Now, years ago, I ate soup in my family that my grandmother made, and it, it had potatoes. And I am I have quotes around the <laughs> name potato. And I was like, this doesn't quite taste like potatoes. And a little bit more in- investigation, it was rutabaga in replacement of potatoes in soup. And it and it is, uh, it has a sweet taste, not as starchy, but the texture is totally the same. You know, you know how you boil potatoes, they yeah. become soft. Well, rutabaga does the same thing and you can do the same with turnip. So okay. you can use turnip and rutabaga as potato if, if you so wish. Now, do you, I've seen them mashed. Do you usually mash them or do you usually use them like in chunks in a stew or chunks something? Chunks in a stew in your, in your chicken noodle soup, you know, which might be or, more over starching your soup. But nonetheless, it does have a different uh, taste. It's not so starchy. Okay. You know, which is can be different. Uh, and I would agree. See, as soon as I as soon as I saw this, I I started looking for rutabaga recipes and I wanted something where I could really taste the rutabaga to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. What I made was a rutabaga chips. Basically, I took a rutabaga, peeled off the outside and used you know, they called a mandolin, one of those things that cuts really thin right. slices. Cut some really thin slices and then I put them into a one of those gallon Ziplocs with some olive oil, a little bit of smoked paprika, some chili powder, a little bit of salt and pepper. I mixed it all up in there together. And then put it onto this tray and did it about uh, 450 for, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. And it came up with these not quite crisp um, chips that I have to tell you, they were really, really good. Good enough that I will make that again. Okay. I guess a different, maybe not so starchy, like I keep saying. But uh, but okay, I might have to try that. That's interesting. You should give it a shot. In fact, I recommend to all of you out there, give that one a shot. (laughs) (laughs) Rutabaga is a coal crop. And there are about... 37 species of what we might call coal crops includes things like cabbage, brown mustard, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts. Kale. Kale, yes. This huge group of coal crops. These are mostly cold season crops. What does cold season crops mean? It it means that you can grow it end of fall, end of winter. It'll grow in the high 40s and 50s, whereas crops like tomatoes, Tomatoes won't grow unless it's uh, over 70 or 75. Something like that. Yeah, yes. something like that. Coal crops, uh, I have to admit, generally speaking, I'm not wild about coal, co- coal crops. Cauliflower, I get by on. Other than that, I'm not wild about them. Now, of course, I add rutabaga to the list. Cindy, you big uh, 
cold crop lover? Yes, I like, uh, I do. I do like a lot of the lettuces and the cauliflowers and broccoli. Although cauliflower is not my favorite. Coleslaw. Coleslaw, you know, all those things. Yes. And this is one of them that here in the South, we start in the fall, right. you know, and then harvest the following fall. But we'll get to that in a minute. Yep. So rutabaga is actually a natural cross between cabbage and turnip. And by natural cross, it 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 wasn't forced. It just occurred naturally. And it was discovered by botanist uh, Gaspard Bowen in, uh, in Sweden around 1620. After he discovered this, they started being grown over a lot of Europe and, uh, and the United States. There are only a few places right now where rutabaga is grown a lot. Newfoundland, Scotland. And by the way, in, in Scotland, it's called a neep. And I just love the name neep. <laughs> neep, neep, you know, I don't know. Anyway, England, it's called a Swede. And of course, here it's called a rutabaga. In uh, Great Britain, it is mostly a fodder crop. In other words, it's mostly grown for animals. Whereas uh, in, in the United States and Canada, it's mostly grown for human consumption. Across Europe, it's really thought of as a, a survival food. And that's actually because of a specific occurrence over uh, 1916, 1970, and end of World War I, when we had something called the turnip winter. And basically over the turnip winter, there was a convergence of issues, of course, having to do largely with World War I, where they couldn't, where the Germans couldn't get potatoes. In fact, they couldn't get a lot of things. So they had what was known as the turnip winter. By the way, rutabagas in some places in the world where rutabaga and the, use, and the word turnip are used almost interchangeably. So it was a tough year couldn't get potatoes. Of course, there was a shortage of meat with the war going on. So basically, most of Germany survived over this turnip winter through eating rutabagas and, uh, and water. And that was, that was their primary source of food over that time. There you go. That was my story. It's a great story. <laughs> well, it's, it's one of the shorter ones we've got. Well, the rutabagas and turnips look very similar mm -hmm. to each other, except the rutabaga is more like an egg-shaped, while the turnip is a ball-shaped. And that may be helpful if at the grocery store you can't tell the difference. Well, well let, me, let me ask. You're obviously more familiar with rutabagas than, than I am. Turnips and rutabagas. Is a rutabaga usually uh, larger than a turnip? Because that's kind of the way that I yes. see it. Okay. Because of the shape is more elongated, and then the, the turnip is more of a ball shape. You know what rutabaga, the word means, actually Swedish word, means baggy root. Oh, so, so well, that you know, makes sense. Baggy root, actually bigger, you know. Yeah. Than a <laughs> baggy anyway. root. Okay. Anyway. We'll call it that, the okay. baggy root discussion. <laughs> we should have started this well, the baggy root discussion. The baggy root discussion. So growing them, though, is, can be fairly simple. You know, unlike most vegetables or, or root crops, I should say, they want to stay moist, even in post-harvest production. So they, do they like a heavy soil? No, they like a well-drained soil, but they don't like to dry out. And I that see. can be tricky, you know, sometimes, mm -hmm. especially in our area, which I probably over-talk too much. But we have clay soils, and, you know, there's always that fine line of too wet or, or too dry. So we, we try to combat that a lot. But with rutabagas, you have to be careful. You, you can't have too wet soil, but you can't have too dry. It has to be just right. And even if you store them in long periods of time, it's recommended that you do so in bags of peat. Oh, really? Yes. To, to maintain moisture? Yes, to maintain wow. moisture so they don't dry out. Okay. So that's kind of, that's different. So they'll, they'll do better in wetter environments than drier environments? Yes. I mean, I, I kind of am 
I worry about that because they are susceptible to a club root disease that typically occurs in poorly drained soils and can linger up into the soil for 20 years. Oh, my goodness. So, of course, there are a lot of diseases that well, under the right sure. conditions will live. Sure. And, you know, you can eat the leaves on these. You can add these leaves to your salads as they grow. But you don't want to remove all of them because that's providing a source of food for the root. You know, I never I never thought about that. But just like there are turnip greens, there would be rutabaga greens sure. as well. Although sure. I've certainly, I, I've never had, you know, until this, never had the rutabaga. So... I'm wondering what the... I love turnip greens. Right. Have you ever had rutabaga greens? No, I haven't. But I imagine they'd be similar. And since it's a cross between cabbage and turnip, you'd expect... That makes sense, you know, which, by the way, that's a peculiar cross, isn't it? It is. But (laughs) but if you look at them uh, botanically, you know, in that whole coal crop group... Right. They're all very, very closely related. Of course, but... And, And crosses happen a lot. I know. It is just still peculiar. But yes, here in the South, you would start with small plants, if you will, not seeds. So you don't you don't do these from seeds? Generally? I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Okay. You know, and it's, that might be because that's my preference. Our listeners, they have great success with seeds, so please don't let me deter you. But we would install them in the fall and let them grow all year long and harvest them, you know, about 100 days, you know, 80 days later. Now, in colder climates, you have to start, you know, in the spring. So in a in a a hundred days, they would go from a small plant to a full-grown, yeah. harvestable. Yeah. That, that's a pretty impressive growth for this kind yeah. of a crop. I'm sure it slows down a good bit in the winter time, right? You know, and then starts back up as but it warms the, uh, up. You're talking about the bulb, and it's essentially a bulb putting on. Actually, it's not really a bulb; it's a root. But you're talking about root putting on weight, putting on right. weight. You Just know. extremely rapidly. Yes. If you need to do it in the spring, I would count backwards from your first frost date back a hundred days, you know, and plant them then. And they're, they're fairly easy and interesting. And, you know, yes, they are for livestock in other countries, but, you know, something different than potatoes because, you know, potatoes are available in the summer. In terms of amount that you can get per unit area for a gardener, it's not that different from potatoes. 75 pounds of rutabaga per 100 square feet in a garden Okay, is is what you can do. And that's that's pretty good production. That it, That's great production. Now, I have read some conflicting information and that the larger they get, the woodier they get. And so be careful. I guess there are uh, in some situations that you can leave some of your rutabagas unharvested to go round two, you know, for next summer or later in the summer to harvest them then. I don't know, that would be kind of tricky. You'd have to mulch a good bit so frost doesn't get the best of them. But it would, I don't know, it'd be interesting to try mm-hmm. if you have some space. After going through these, I have to say that the rutabaga is definitely one in the in the home garden that seems like it's one of the easier crops to grow, as long as you keep it reasonably moist. Not only is it one of the easier crops to go, it's something that you're going to get relatively rapidly. A hundred days for a crop like this is really good. Now, post-harvest, you need to store them in a cool environment, almost like a refrigerator and in moist conditions. So that's a plus. Now, um, one thing I should say, they do get a variety of insects. And I know, like everything, like everything, but they will start attacking the foliage in the summertime. You know, even slugs, of course, aphids do everything, Uh, flea beetles. And one of the recommendations was to use floating covers you know, un- until they get settled throughout a, the summer. I'm a big believer in floating covers. And for those of you who don't know what floating row covers are, this is a, actually a, an older style method of insect uh, protection. Basically, it's a 
It's a cloth, almost almost like cheesecloth. You can use something called rime if you want to look rime up. You spread this cloth across the crop when it's very young, and then as as the crop grows, uh, it it grows under the cloth, so the cloth protects the crop from insects. Um, the the biggest problem with something like rime is that if there's an insect under there to begin with, <laughs> it's protected from predators. One thing about Rime is you look at it and you say, how can the sunlight get inside that? Actually, 90% of sunlight passes through it. It's, again, it's something I've worked with in the past, and I'm a big believer in, in Rime. Uh, not cheesecloth so much, although some people do use that. Well, it's, a, it, it's, more, it's more used in an ornamental component as frost protection. As, yes, and it works great for frost protection yes. as, as well. Okay. So I want you to try rutabagas in your soup next time. I, you tell know me something what you I really think. want to. I also, the other thing I want to try is those mashed rutabagas. I think mashed rutabagas would be a lot of fun. And I'm going to try the now, chips. Now, now you say that, but there's one thing we haven't touched on. You know that rutabagas are toxic. Because of course they are. Everything Everything is toxic. toxic. I have a great quote rutabaga. that I'm going to go on ahead. another episode. For another episode? Yes. Okay. Rutabaga, and there are a number of uh, related vegetables that have this. Rutabaga contains goitrin, and goitrin, it, goitrin sounds like goiter, right? Okay. And goiter is, you know, caused by iodine issues. Goitrin affects the ability of the thyroid to take up iodine, which can cause a goiter. This is very unusual. This is not something that's likely to happen. But if you do have thyroid or iodine issues, you actually should talk to your doctor about your intake of rutabaga. So it actually is kind of interesting. Again, under most circumstances, it's not much of an issue, but it is there. Um, cooking does get rid of most of these compounds. Okay. And of course, the more cooking you do, the, the more it gets rid of Yeah, I have never eaten a raw rutabaga. rutabaga. But I guess in in the times where it, it kept people alive. Yeah, when I when I when, uh, when we got this rutabaga, you know, to slice up, of course I have to taste a tiny, <laughs> not that different from a, a turnip. Okay, root, really. So maybe slightly less. You know how a turnip is like has that bite. You don't have quite that. All right. Well, thanks for listening. This has been the Plants We Eat, a production of UNC Charlotte Botanical Gardens, University of North Carolina at Charlotte College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, and the Isle Group. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to talking with you next week when we will talk about something very, very special. Nolan Hancock has recommended uh, sassafras, and hey, we're going to talk about sassafras. Awesome. Talk to you next week. <laughs>